Hello. Now, you write that almost every food that comes with a health claim on the packet is ultra-processed. That's quite a good way of distinguishing this from just junk food, right? We're not just talking about junk food. No, some ultra-processed food is obvious junk. But the the problem with ultra-processed food is that in New Zealand, to some extent, Australia, Canada, the UK and the US, to a huge extent, it is the staples of our diet that have become ultra-processed. So the ultra-processed food is a way of describing an American industrialized diet. And that is the one diet that we know is associated with a huge range of problems. And so, I mean, take bread, right? Loads and loads and loads of people eat a sandwich for lunch. And even if you're getting the whole grain brown bread with lots of seeds and nuts in it, for example, it probably has emulsifiers in it, um, just to take you know that one kind of additive mm. what are emulsifiers and and what might they be doing to our bodies so you you're right that the the supermarket bread is almost all ultra processed because it the definition is it contains at least one additive you don't typically find in the domestic kitchen like an emulsifier now i think generally the additives aren't really the problem mm-hmm. they're a sign that a product has been designed uh for profit not for nourishment. But in the case of emulsifiers and a few other additives, there are really concerning um, studies that are emerging showing they cause health problems. So emulsifiers are widely found in nature. We've used them in traditional cooking for a long time. They allow you to mix fat and water. So an egg yolk is a good emulsifier and you can use it to make mayonnaise, for example. When we use synthetic emulsifier, and, and the other thing is your detergent that you wash fat off dishes with, it's also an emulsifier. (laughs) In your gut, synthetic emulsifiers act a bit like detergents, and they seem to scrub out the mucus lining of the gut, and they seem to damage the microbiome, the friendly bugs that live inside us. So there's growing evidence that emulsifiers lead to inflammation and seem to be associated with lots and lots of different poor health outcomes in humans and in animals so they are they're almost universal in this food they're in our soft drinks in our condiments they're in our toothpaste in our kids medicines they're in absolutely everything because they they create smooth creaminess in the mouth and they bond things together very effectively and they're one of the things that i would try and avoid although they're also one of the hardest things to well so interesting of course that's just part of the story um you mentioned food uh, designed for profit rather than nourishment, and there's a kind of an interesting phrase here: commerciogenic disease. What is that? So, for a long time, we've thought of obesity as a problem that was to do with willpower, is to do with individuals who were being slothful or greedy, <laughs> and that is completely inaccurate. So, obesity and diet-related disease have overtaken smoking as the leading cause of early death. And it's not because we've had some global failure of willpower or moral responsibility. It's because the food environment has changed. And the way it's changed is it's become ultra processed. So our food is most of our calories around the globe are made by a very, very small number of companies, less than 20 companies. Um, and they produce this food, not just for profit, but financial growth. So my, I'm an academic as well as a, a doctor. And a lot of my research now is using economic models to understand incentives in the food system and what we can demonstrate very easily is that food companies have not just their main interest but their only interest is in generating economic growth for their owners and so we can look at things like the way they buy back shares and the way they buy debt to 
buy back those shares and the way they turn down public health proposals in their to their to their boards and the institutional investors reject those public health proposals so in, in the end my theories it's not my theory this is very widely mm. agreed on by all kinds of institutions but the proposal is fairly simple if food is made by people who love you then it nourishes you if food is made by transnational corporations who are answerable to hedge funds and pension funds you know what it's much more about making the money than it is about nourishing i love that and and you are an academic as you say and a researcher but you're also willing to be a guinea pig what happened to your body when you volunteered for an experiment and ate a diet consisting of 80 percent ultra processed food so the um Kind of at the, at the heart of my book is this idea that we're all part of a giant experiment that we didn't volunteer for. Mm. And all this new food is trialed on us the whole time. And so I invite the reader to go on and do the experiment for themselves, to, to eat whilst they read in order to become familiar with this food. And what happens is this is a very well-evident psychological technique, is if you eat a, or you engage with an addictive substance while you consume it, then you often become disgusted by it. So this is the basis of the the famous book, The Easy Way to Quit Smoking. And that was what I had in mind. And the reason I put that in the book is because I ate this diet where 80% of my calories came from UPF. And midway through the diet, I suddenly became disgusted. I was talking to a scientist in Brazil and they kept saying, Chris, it's not food. These are industrially produced edible substances. They really, really aren't food. Food is about nourishment. These products aren't. And I suddenly stopped enjoying it. I stopped being able to eat it. So that's kind of the gift I want to give the reader is Uh by the end of the book, if you're living with addiction, you'll find the foods disgusting. Uh There was a really interesting clinical trial of 20 people who ate ultra-processed food for 14 days and then unprocessed food for 14 days. And, And what did that research find? It, that was one of the, the best studies. It was it was small, but it was expertly conducted at the NIH in the States. And what it showed is that when people were on the unprocessed diet, so for a start, both the diets were matched for salt, fat, sugar, and fiber. So they were very similar. And both diets were equally delicious. But one diet was unprocessed. The other diet was bought from shops, and it was all ultra-processed. On the unprocessed food, which everyone found delicious, and they had as much of it as they could eat, they ate about 500 calories less per day than in the ultra-processed food. And they lost weight. Most of them lost weight, even though they were eating as much as they wanted. Huh. On the ultra-processed diet, people ate, people ate um, 500 calories more, and over a fortnight, <coughs> forgive me, over a fortnight gained about a kilo. And that's exactly what happened to me on my diet. I gained so much weight in a month that if I'd continued, I would have doubled my body weight in a year. That's what we've seen in all the clinical trials. It's also what the population, the epidemiology shows us. It's one of the strongest effects is this is food that is engineered to make us consume more of it. Because guess what? If you eat it quicker and you eat more of it, the companies who make it make more money. So Mm -hmm. um, I spoke to loads of people inside food companies who all confirmed this food is tested using focus groups. It's put through big panels of tasters and the foods that people eat the quickest and eat the most of, they're the ones that end up on our shelves. If we're overeating, that's a success, an economic success. If you have, if to understand this food, you have to put yourself in the head of anyone who works at a food company. And you have to understand that the other food companies all want to sell more for food than you, um, that we all have enough food, so you have to make the food addictive. And you have to understand who you're answerable to. Food, people in the food companies, CEOs at Unilever, Pepsi, 
and Danon have all tried quite hard to make their portfolios healthier. And all of them have been sacked. Um, at Danon, <laughs> they were sacked by activist investors, by a hedge fund, because the share price fell. And so you have to sort of understand that someone, an analyst at BlackRock said to me, um, these companies are not in charge of their business model. We are. So the, the big finance houses, the asset managers, the pension funds, Vanguard, BlackRock, Jupiter, these are the companies who d- demand money. And, and this is kind of necessary. I mean, this is where my pension is partly a BlackRock. So in a way, I am part of the problem. And what that tells us is my argument isn't anti-capitalist. I have a pension at BlackRock. My argument is that the food companies can't change unless governments regulate them. And that needn't come at the expense of economic growth, by the way. This isn't an anti-capitalist argument. You know, we know that when we regulate industrial sectors, we often see increased growth. We've seen it with the pharmaceutical industry. We've seen it with tech and telecom. So this, this needn't lose jobs or shrink companies. The food system is really capable of providing healthy food, but we, they do need regulation to do it. They can't do it on their own. I'm speaking to Dr. Chris Van Tulliken. His book is called Ultra Processed People. Why do we all eat stuff that isn't food and why can't we stop? Um, and so, as you say, we're all part of an experiment, one we didn't volunteer for. The average person, you say, ingests eight kilos of additives each year. And we talked a bit about emulsifiers, but do we understand what those additives are doing to our bodies? Not at all. So in the UK, we have about two and a half thousand additives that we add to food. In the US, it could be 5,000, it could be 10,000, it could be 15,000. No one really knows because there's no list and the regulation is virtually non-existent. So the additives, whilst we know that most of them in, in, the, in Europe and New Zealand and Australia, they're regulated in the sense we know they're not toxic. They generally don't cause birth defects or cancer. That that stuff is studied. What we don't study and what isn't in any of the regulatory documents is whether they drive weight gain, whether they drive inflammation, whether they drive diabetes, metabolic disease. None of that is known because it's too complicated to study. So the big things that are concerning the scientists who are working on this now are how are these affecting our overall levels of inflammation and particularly our microbiome. So the additives that I would really suggest that people look out for are emulsifiers and non-nutritive sweeteners so some of these sweeteners are they're called natural but they're still sweetness without sugar and the sweetness without sugar is a really important way of understanding how ultra processed products products Mm. affect our health so many of these foods tell us nutritional lies the reason you can taste sweetness is to prepare your body physiologically to get sugar right if sweetness on the tongue sugar's on its way so you can spike your insulin levels a bit you can get hormonally ready for what's coming the same is true of bitterness signals toxins um umami signals some protein uh and and we have a way of detecting fat as well when instead of fat we have gums instead of um protein we have synthetic uh umami from uh additives flavor enhancers like monosodium glutamate and when we have sweetness without sugar those lies appear to be very stressful for the body. And so there's really good evidence now. The World Health Organization has released a big position statement saying that the non-nutritive sweeteners, the the artificial sweeteners or or even the naturally derived ones, don't seem to be better than sugar when it comes to metabolic health. They may even be worse. And they certainly don't seem to be at all useful for weight loss. And that tells us something that we're really missing something about the way we think about the body. 
If you can do a perfect swap where you take out all the calories of sugar and you put in a molecule that tastes like sugar but zero calories, it ought to promote massive weight loss, and it doesn't. And we don't exactly understand why, but it seems to make you either go and get more calories elsewhere or it seems to really interfere with your body's normal metabolic processes Mm. so you you gain weight or at least don't lose it. So sweeteners are another, another big, big problem, particularly here in the UK. Does this stuff affect our brains too? So as part of my experiment, and, and it wasn't a stunt for the book, it was, a, it, was a, it was an experiment to gather pilot data for a much bigger study we're now running. I was scanned before and, and after my month-long diet. And I was scanned by colleagues at our National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. So these weren't amateur scans. Um, and we saw very significant changes, mainly in the connectivity between the habit-forming bits at the back of the brain and the addiction reward centers in the middle. So this is food that we have more and more evidence actually is addictive. And there are going to be loads of people listening that will recognize that they have a problem with this food. And I don't know if you've experienced this, Jesse, but there'll be lots of, lots of products where I've had the experience that I want to stop eating them. I know they're not good for me. And yet, as if by some <laughs> unseen force, it keeps going into your mouth. Oh, and yeah. the product, you know, we have a cereal in the UK called Crave. We have slogans like, once you pop, you can't stop. Mm. The companies lean into this addiction. But so a lot of people, one of the ideas in the book is that the book is trying to frame for some people, some of these products as addictive. And I think there are people who cannot live in moderation with this food. And I am certainly one of them. So I don't eat it at all. I don't want to eat it. But I'm really conscious, especially in a country like New Zealand, um, and certainly like the UK, where there is there's, there is social inequality. Many, many people will be unable to, fo- to afford to eat real food, especially during the, the global cost of living crisis. So I, there's no advice in the book. I don't tell anyone not to eat this food, because the tragedy is that for many people, this is the only affordable, available food. This stuff, this ultra-processed food, this food designed to be addictive, it sort of short-circuits your brain and your impulses, although there is encouraging research uh, as to what kids might choose if we let them free of marketing exposure. Yeah, I mean, kids... So I I present a show called Operation Ouch on the BBC, which has been running for a decade. It's about science and medicine for kids. And kids are... So I meet a lot of kids of school age, and I've got two i've got a six-year-old and a three-year-old kids are really smart kids want to be good at sport they want to grow tall and healthy they want to be smart they want to um uh uh you know do well at school they care about their bodies and our generation will remember telling our parents to stop smoking because we were so worried about the effects of cigarettes what we see in countries like chile is when you properly label the food and you put black hexagons on ultra processed food Children ask their parents to stop buying it in the same way we told our parents to stop smoking. So limiting the marketing is one of the most, you know, the most important thing is we have structural change. This is not about individual responsibility. This is about changing the food environment. And the marketing is almost the most important aspect of that. This particularly children. And I would guess the situation is the same in New Zealand. They are soaked in marketing for these products from the moment they wake up to when they go to sleep. It is in their music apps, their tech apps. Uh, The companies get their phone numbers and um, mail them deals. Uh, They're surrounded by billboards all the way from home to school. Uh, There are chicken shops and it's available in every corner shops in many schools in 
in the UK, there are vending machines that sell them ultra processed food, and of course, the serves the food, the food um, serves ultra processed. The school f- serves ultra processed food. Forgive me, sorry, it's quite late here. So <laughs> you're doing um, very well, by the way. Particularly as a the father marketing... of a six and a three year old, <laughs> they're going to be up in a minute. Um, <laughs> anyway, the the marketing is just relentless and aggressive. And I don't, I don't know the situation in New Zealand, in the UK, in Australia, in America. The food industry, these this small number of fifteen to twenty companies that make all our food, and they're all they're all the same. That you eat the same food in New Zealand, we all eat the same stuff in 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 the in the in the global north. Even though I know you're in the in the south, you're mm. part of the sort of yeah. axis of countries that we call the global north. Um, the food companies have gigantic influence over nutrition policy, the way we label food, the way we issue warnings. So our scientific advisory committee on nutrition in the UK has 16 members, 15 of them have declared conflicts with the food and drink industry. And the same is true of all our charities that advise on food policy. They're all funded by the food industry. Oh so the, almost the most important thing, and this is what, what the work I do with UNICEF and the World Health Organization, most of it is trying to say, can we please get industry out of the room? Yeah. You cannot have a good faith conversation. And industry is a bit like oil. They want to position themselves uh-huh. as part of the solution. Yeah. But you cannot profit from causing a problem and at the same time be part of the solution. It can't be done. <laughs> so, Andrew, we had a leaders' debate last night ahead of our general election, and um, the idea of a sugar tax was put to both leaders of major parties. Neither of them were interested. Is that something as mm. you see as part of the toolkit? We did um Honestly, I'm not a huge fan of taxes, and there are a couple of reasons. First of all, we brought in a sugar tax in the UK, removed all the sugar from the diet. It was all replaced with artificial sweeteners. Yeah. We've seen absolutely no loss. Yeah. We, we know we got rid of the sugar and it's and we know no one's lost any weight, particularly kids. Um, the second thing is taxes are a bit regressive unless they're done incredibly well. Uh-huh. They do limit freedoms. And I think depending whatever political side you're on, the thing you want to be arguing for is increasing rights and freedoms. You want to make more real food more cheap and more available. So I think the most effective thing to do is to effectively label the ultra processed food, take the cartoon characters off it, stop the ads to kids and then have policies that improve affordability and accessibility to food and fight poverty. You know, the, the what we know is that basically if you have money, you don't eat this food. Uh, rich people, celebrities, international sports stars, they don't eat any of this. They market it. They take money from the companies, but they never eat it. You can go and speak to any athlete on any sports team. They might have the odd burger from a from a chain, but the core of their diet will be real food. And we know that's how rich people eat. And poor people should be able to eat like rich people. So sugar tax, what I I would favor is going all food with either high levels of sugar and or artificial sweeteners and or emulsifiers, um, all of that should be labeled as ultra processed. And in your national guidance, you should warn everyone about it. And that's the that's the beginning of change. Once people know food is harmful and they can afford real food, generally they make really smart choices. And that's what we see in South and Central America. One of our major parties has a policy of taking sales tax off fruit and vegetables. Now, they've struggled to find an economist who thinks that's a good idea, but it sounds like that's in the right sort of zone for you. I think that is in the right zone. I haven't seen modelling on that. Mm. The difficulty in the UK with fruit and veg is not just that they are absolutely more expensive and they are incredibly expensive here. They also don't keep. 
You need equipment, knives, chopping boards, stoves right. to prepare them. You also need time, and time is incredibly yeah. expensive. And then you need tapo. You batch cook a lasagna from fresh ingredients. <laughs> you need to freeze some of it to make it economical, and you need to cook it all using energy that's also expensive. So eating real food is just really, really expensive. We do know that when you make fresh fruit and veg available, and when it's good stuff, people really like eating it. Kids. Kids do like eating real food. You you have to get them when they're hungry, and they can't be they can't be junk on the same table, or they'll they'll all go for that. Yeah. But they will enjoy tasty fruit and veg, especially if they're told it's good for them. We've we've got lots of data on that. You don't give advice, however. What should we take out of this? Should we try and moderate our consumption of ultra processed foods, or should we go cold turkey? I think if someone is listening. And they recognise they've got an addiction. So the definition of addiction is continued use of a substance despite knowledge of the harms and despite repeated attempts to quit. Now I recognise in myself there are many ultra processed things I'm addicted to. Those people can't be moderate. Addicts can't be, and and I I can't be. So for those people, if you can afford it, and if you have the time and the money and the skills and the knowledge, try and switch to eating non ultra processed foods. And all that means is look to the all the culinary traditions around the world every single human traditional diet ever studied comes with health benefits whether it's you know east asian food that's mainly fish or south asian vegan food or you know mediterranean food it's, it's all brilliant for you just get out a cookbook and start cooking it's all healthy um but it, that isn't a trivial bit of advice for people some people may just want to be moderate if you really don't think you have a problem but you're just eating it cuz you didn't realize you're just having your your emulsified bread sandwich every day and but you want to lose some weight or feel a bit healthier then i'd recommend trying to make your own lunch it will be expensive and it will take up your time and so what i do i've got these two young kids and they do eat a certain amount of um pre-prepared junk because we're sort of exhausted and yeah. it's cheap and it's available but we we don't have it as the foundation of the diet there's not much garbage in the house there's a bowl of sweets I certainly don't ban it. I don't eat it, but I don't ban my kids from it because I want them to be normal. And in New Zealand, Australia, the UK, Canada, if you want to have a normal childhood, you have to eat these products. And so I want them to feel bonded to their friends. So they nothing's forbidden, but when they get in from school and they're hungry and tired, they sit in front of the TV some of the time, I'll confess to that, and they get a big bowl of raw fruit and and vegetables to to munch on and when they're bored they will eat that stuff. And if they can get that down them, then I don't feel so bad about giving them fish fingers and beans for dinner. Well, a pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Chris Van Tulliken. The book is Ultra Processed People. Why do we all eat stuff that isn't food and why can't we stop? Chris, thanks so much for your time. Great to chat. Thanks. You, thank you, Jesse. It was such such a treat and uh, lovely to speak to uh, friends and, and in New Zealand. It's, it's just a place I really love. So um, lovely to speak to you.